episode of the Wait, 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 no, no, no. I hadn't started recording. I had started recording. Fuck, I um, went early. Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, the first couple seconds of that weren't in. I'm so fucking bad at this. If only I had a way to like loop the time somehow. and welcome to another episode of the Lost Broadcast. As always, I'm Esther, and this is my co- Fuck! No, I'm sorry. I'd gotten so much better at that. All right, uh, let's, 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 let's give that one more try. Let's do it, yeah. Okay. No, that's just wrong. No, I don't no. want that. I don't... <laughs> no. Well, I just thought... That doesn't feel right at all. We're trying to get it right. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're going in the wrong direction here. Okay, okay. One more time. about tv shows that tried and failed to be the next lost as always i am your host hannah i'm esther hooray we finally got the perfect we did it and we broke the loop we broke the loop um yeah so we are now officially in our stretch of our podcast where we can just kind of talk about whatever lost like we want um which means that for this month we chose a show that i was kind of obsessed with in the year 2006 when it first aired we chose Daybreak. Daybreak, starring Tay Diggs. Starring the incomparable Tay Diggs. The amazing, frankly, very handsome Tay Diggs. <laughs> yeah. Brian McDaniels, I like to ski in Vermont. Shut up, Harper. I like dating chocolate girls. Um, <laughs> no, this is, uh, yeah, aired in 2006, was brought on as a mid-season replacement for Lost. Um, we'll get into the details of that a little bit later, but the thing you really have to know up front is that um, when Lost started season three, it aired a group of six episodes called The Pod mm-hmm. that were supposed to act as like basically a mini series to lead into the rest of the season. Esther, I have a question that I've never understood the answer to. Why do they call it The Pod? It sounds very lost. I mean, it sounds losty to me. It sounds losty to me. The Pod. We have The Hatch. <laughs> Why not The Pod? <laughs> There's just nouns are inherently losty. I think so. Yeah. The noun. Losty. Um, Got it. Yeah, because people were frustrated that Lost kept interrupting its previous seasons, going on breaks, airing repeats. So they said, okay, we'll do the pod, take a 12-week break, mm-hmm. and then air the rest of the season uninterrupted. That's our compromise. Yeah. That's how network TV worked back then. Um, and in between, in that 12-week break, we'll air Daybreak um, in Lost time slot. And, you know, didn't go so great for Daybreak, um, unfortunately. yeah. Uh, spoiler, it's on this podcast, so it inherently didn't go well for it. <laughs> um, but guess what? It's really good. It's yeah. a really good show. 
um, it's unfortunate what happened. Yeah, yeah, and we'll go into the many reasons why, because, like, as as sad as it is that this one did not work, it's one of the ones where, like, it should have been so easy to see this coming. Yeah. Um, anyways, so what is Daybreak? Daybreak is a uh, one-hour neo-noir action mystery thriller with supernatural elements. With supernatural elements. Uh, it aired on ABC for six episodes before being taken off the air. Six episodes in five weeks, by the way. Took five weeks for them to pull the plug on this thing. That's so sad. <laughs> um, that makes it the most quickly canceled show we have yet covered, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the high-level premise of Daybreak? Okay, so we've got this LAPD narcotics detective named Brett Hopper. That's Tay Diggs. That's Tay Diggs. Um, who gets framed for the murder of Assistant District Attorney Alberto Garza one morning. And when that day wraps up, he wakes up and experiences the exact same day again. So it's a time loop show. That's right. Get it? That's why we did that really obnoxious bit in the opening. That's right. I hope you knew what Daybreak was before you press play on this, because you would not have understood that otherwise. Yeah. And if you're upset by it, then we'll just loop everything you've heard <laughs> up until now. If, we're, if you're upset by it, what you have to do is you have to leave a actually a five-star review <laughs> yeah. on iTunes. Um, we'll never show see us it coming. Show care. Yeah. <laughs> And the stars are for how mad you are. Yeah, do, do, do one of those posts where it's like, I'm usually such a big fan of yours, but this is not it. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, we will start putting time loops into other episodes if this doesn't go over well. <laughs> right. So over the course of the time loops, as he experiences the same day over and over again, he's trying to figure out who framed him for this murder and just generally sort of unravel the conspiracy that uh, he's become mm-hmm. wrapped up in. Um, and that's sort of like the lost style slow burn mystery of it, right? Is like, you know, there's all of these mysteries and questions that, uh, to start the season in terms of who different people are, who the players are, what is even going on. Um, though notably one mystery that is absolutely not part of the show's plot whatsoever is why the time loop is happening. Um, Yeah, they... They very much approach it from, like, the perspective of the character experiencing it, right? Where it's, like, in one episode, um, an annoying character who thinks he's smarter than everyone, like, asks him, like, so what do you think about the metaphysical why behind why this is happening? And in another episode, he, like, encounters someone that, like, makes him think that maybe there's something neurologically wrong with him. So, like, tracks down that possibility. But other than that, it's not concerned with the sort of, like, the the cause of the loop, right? It's not like, you know, the mysterious Manticore Institute has been experimenting <laughs> with time loops. Yeah, no, there is there is really he doesn't even make an effort really beyond, you know, the the most general stuff to, to track down why this is happening to him. It is mm-hmm. just about uh the sort of criminal conspiracy at the heart of everything. Which is cool. I think that like Yeah. You know, obviously Lost got very much involved in sort of the science fictional aspects of its mysteries, but I think it is to Daybreak's credit that it does not sort of get bogged down in like, you know, in the ways that like thresholds could, for example. Yeah. In term of like the sciencey aspects of everything. Yeah. Or flash forward for certainly. Yeah. It's, you know, um, one thing that I noted when we were watching this is that like this is the first of these shows where we have had a supernatural hook to it where there hasn't been a government team that's dedicated to unraveling the supernatural hook of the show yeah um which is a hugely refreshing like perspective about it and it's so weird right because like lost itself didn't have like 
a government team that's trying to unlock the secrets of the island. Like, as far as we know, by the end of that show, the U.S. government has no idea the island exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but, like, every single other one of these is, like, you know, Invasion, Surface, Threshold, and Flash Forward are all just grounded in this idea of, like, okay, well, the government would start to get this under control. And maybe they're, like, playing with forces a little bigger yeah. than they understand, but, like, it's still something that they're wrangling with it's it's residual x-files i think yeah it's very much like leftover you know we talk all the time on the show about how much like the shows that were influenced by lost are sort of the x-files gets grandfathered in basically yeah in terms of influence (laughs) and i think those shows are a great example of like oh well of course if there's some sort of sci-fi mystery then we have to get there has to be a government task force there has to be like Mulder and scully type stuff going on Mm -hmm. um daybreak none of that it is just a so a criminal conspiracy of the kind that you would see in like a Michael Mann movie. Yeah. And the way that it sort of like uses the, um, the supernatural element of it is that it allows for the conspiracy to be like bounded to a single day and to be like way too like complex and multi-pronged for a character to like fully unravel in a single day without having like superpowers or without yeah. having like the benefit of all this hindsight. Um, so we've been talking about that single character a lot, uh, Mr. Brett Hopper, but not anyone else, interestingly enough, which is probably your first hint that this is not really an ensemble show. Not really. By the nature of what he, what Brett is experiencing, it kind of can't be. Everyone else kind of has to be on the outside. Yeah, it's a show about loneliness in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but there is, you know, there, there are several characters. There's a supporting cast. Yeah. Um, and we love them. They're and they're all, they're all great. Um, first one is his girlfriend, Rita Shelton, played by the phenomenally named Moon Bloodgood. Yeah, she wakes up and she feels like Korean Mariah Carey. <laughs> um, she is a really interesting character because she begins the show feeling rather generic um, mm-hmm. in terms of like, she's the girlfriend, he has to protect her because one of the things that happens uh, over the course of the loop is that he sort of comes to understand immediately that if he doesn't intercede in some way, she will be murdered by the end of the day. Blah, blah, blah. By the conspiracy. So there's, like, even in the opening sort of uh, monologue that starts every episode, he says that, like, one of the central things about it is that my girlfriend will be murdered. You think you're having a bad day? Check this out. Fred Hopper. You're under arrest for the murder of assistant DA Alberto Garza. I've been framed for murder. Girlfriend's life is in danger. My sister's in trouble. My partner sold me out. I'm sorry. My girlfriend's ex-husband is loving every minute of it. They got you called, man. I'm pulled out of jail in the middle of the night. Dragged to the middle of nowhere. I'm going to admit to killing Alberto Garza. Only to discover that the worst is yet to come. <laughs> and when I finally think it's over, it all happens again. <laughs> And it's the same damn day. I don't understand how or why. All I know is that I have to keep my girlfriend safe. Yeah. Every single day. Um, unless he does something. And so she sort of starts out a little blank lady. She's sweet, you know, it's a good performance, but she starts out not super interesting. And she gets a lot more to do by the end of the season. Yeah. Um, I think that, like, during the first couple episodes, like, we were mostly noting, like, how their relationship is cute, um, how it's cool that she's, like, really supportive and not necessarily, like, fully accepting of the time jumps or the time loop stuff, but, like, 
willing to roll with it like out of the gate um but yeah we're gonna get into it a little later on but over the course of the show um she becomes like probably the most interesting character as far as like how she figures into the mystery yeah um sort of a a different version of that same idea is is brett's sister uh jennifer mathis Mm -hmm. um she also starts out feeling like um you know a, a little bit more plot element than character. One of the first things that he discovers on the loop is that he thinks anyway, she's being abused by her husband. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's sort of like, well, now that I know that in the next loop, I'm going to go after him. Um, And it's interesting. There's a huge gap between that happening and then him later learning what's actually going on with them, which is another something we'll get into the structure of the show and the reason that's so cool. But that's a great example of like, there's not really an ABC like linear progression to this to this story at all. It really ping pongs between different elements. Which is ironic because it did air on the ABC network. Yeah, and that's probably why it got, can- <laughs> got canceled. To be honest with you, um, if only it was airing on like a network that was all about zigzagging between letters like yeah. CBS <laughs> or FOX. F-O-X. That one goes crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, then we have Andrea Battle. Andrea Battle almost as phenomenal a character name as Moon Bloodgood is a real person's name. Yeah, uh, played by Victoria Pratt. She wakes up every day feeling like, wait, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, so she is Brett's partner. Because he, uh, he detect- like not a detective. He, he yeah. is a detective, obviously. <laughs> I, I don't know if we mentioned that by now. <laughs> I love the idea that he's Polly and we're just dropping <laughs> that in here. <laughs> it's like, think you're having a rough day? My polycule's giving me a hassle. <laughs> My metamor will be murdered. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody's done the dishes in six days. <laughs> yeah. Andrea Battle is great. She is, she's fascinating because the characterization they give her is the, like you say, is the exact characterization that every Latina in an action movie has ever had. Yeah. But she is just a white woman. Like, it's uncanny how Michelle Rodriguez she is. No, I was like, when we were watching this, I was looking up like, okay, wait, no, is Victoria Pratt like, is she like white Cuban or is she, you know, like mixed race or something like that? Um, so I was just starting to like Google, is Victoria Pratt Latina? And then I found that that was already the first autocomplete suggestion <laughs> on my Chrome. So it's like, oh, I've been, I've been uh, uh, haunted by this question for a while now. <laughs> no, but yeah, she's like, you know, she's tough as nail. She's like a little snarky. Um, she's a very fun character. Um, I think she definitely, like, plays more into the realm of just, like, somebody who is cool to have around and somebody who, like, can help Brett out in ways that are really fun rather than, like, somebody who has a lot of, like, interesting characterization in and of herself. Yeah. Um, then we've got Damien Ortiz, who is, uh, Detective Brett Hopper's CI in a, like, big, uh, like organized crime narcotics investigation that he's running. Um, Damien's amazing. Damien, we love him. Damien's a great character because yeah, so he is, he is an informant. He, he starts the day upset with Brett because the previous night his safe house gets hit and he is given uh, the impression that Brett sold him out basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so an interesting part of every loop is that he has to mollify Damien <laughs> yeah. um, in order to get him to work with him. Yeah. And if he doesn't like, uh, remember to do that in time that like Damien's goons will just find him and stick him in the back of a trunk. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that like um, happens to him like through like episode 11. <laughs> yeah. Damien, Damien's fun because um, 
he often sort of has to accompany Brett on, on various episodic adventures to figure stuff out, mm-hmm. but he always hates it. He is always like, listen, Hopper, I, I hate investigating stuff. I don't like, like writing a log and like <laughs> going to locations. It's like, I mostly just put people in trunks, Hop. <laughs> you keep having events occur to you. I'm not about that life. <laughs> yeah, Dave, David is like a great a great example of a character who is fun because of how utterly disinterested they are in engaging with the main story. Of what yeah, they're in. he's um. We're gonna make a lot of like video game comparisons in this because like you know the inherent nature of like save scumming or like time loop based games like Majora's Mask like they come up as points of comparison, right? Mm-hmm. Um. And Damien is absolutely, like, the archetype of, like, the the guy in your RPG party who's just evil and who, like, <laughs> whenever you, like, complete a quest, you're just like, I don't know, man, we should have taken 20% more money for that. Yeah, it's like if you had a Mass Effect, like, party member, and you know how sometimes you'll be faced with a decision and you'll, like, get input from the guys you have along, but yeah. there's always one that's like, I think we should kill them all. <laughs> yeah. That's who Damien is. Yeah, um, but he's he's great as well as, like, um, somebody who complicates all these loops, like we said. Um, there's just so many different ways that, like, things can get slightly fucked in each of the, the iterations of the loop that Hopper has. Um, and Damien is absolutely one of the sources. Yeah. Um, there's another prick on the cast. The, big, the biggest prick, perhaps. Well, there's a couple down the list. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. We have uh, Detective Chad Shelton, uh, played by... Adam Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Um, he is Rita's ex-husband. Yeah. And naturally, he hates Brett for uh, taking Rita away from him. He's he's also Brett's former partner before yes. transferring over to Internal Affairs. Yeah. Which, is, in any TV show, is the most evil thing a cop can do. It's so cool how, like, there's so many shows that just hold these simultaneous premises of, like, oh, yeah, there's rampant corruption within the police force, but also Internal Affairs is the bad guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, Chad is, Chad is, um, Chad's terrific. Just, just the quintessential Adam Baldwin character, frankly. Yeah. He's, um, he's, the thing that distinguishes him from, like, you know, the Adam Baldwin character in, like, Firefly is that, like, he is a real college type guy. Um, he's the one that starts, like, asking Brett about, like, the metaphysical why and, like, telling him his theories about, like, well... I read an interesting article about how time is a texture. And Brett just looks at him and is like, shut the fuck up, dude. That doesn't interest me. He's, he's like if uh, Jane from Firefly was a Winklevoss twin. Yes, that's a great way to put it. Um, but yeah, like a great character as far as like, um, you know, is he just a prick or is he in on the conspiracy? Like how in deep is he? Um, how much can he be trusted, etc. cetera? Um, and they definitely like turn you around a number of times in terms of like how you feel about him. Uh, we have a couple pairs, a couple paired characters on this show. Mm-hmm. First important pair is uh, Detective Christopher Choi and Detective Armin Spivak, played by Lost Broadcast returnee Ian Anthony Dale. Ian Anthony Dale, please collect your commemorative coin. Um, email <laughs> us, we'll give you instructions on how to get your coin. The commemorative coin is just is just going to be a quarter. Yeah. Um, but... Hopefully that's... Uh, it's a quarter, and I've written Ian Anthony Dale in it with the world's, like, tiniest Sharpie. I'm sure that's more than you're seeing from Daybreak Residuals these days, so... Yeah, whoops. Uh, <laughs> support the SAG strike, by the way. Yeah. Um, and Mitch Pileggi uh, uh, as, yeah. as Detective Spivak. The, the dynamic there is that Choi is the much more, like, sympathetic detective who, like, every loop he gets somewhere between, like, 30 to 70% of the way f- to figuring out, like, hold on. 
I think Hopper's being framed. Um, and then Spivak is the more, like, asshole, like, you know, uh, hard-nosed detective who's like, nah, he's a piece of shit. His dad was a piece of shit. <laughs> Hopper's dad is also a detective. Um, he, he, we're just gonna kill him. Yeah. Um, and then the other pair is the goons. There's some great goons. Classic goons. Yeah, there's Fensick and Buckalter are the two, like, former sheriff's deputies who spend the day riding around in a black SUV and, like... Getting shot so many times. They die a lot. They die a lot over the course of the show. Yeah, we see them die at least like half a dozen times, probably more. <laughs> yeah, th- their role basically is just to sort of be a conduit to the greater conspiracy because their job, you mm-hmm. know, on this day is to follow Brett around. Yeah. Um, but they're just fun characters. There's fun, like, late in the series, there'll be bits where... Um, Brett just gets out of bed first thing and just walks over to the van that he knows is parked outside and like taps on the window and he's like, you guys ever feel just like giving up? (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, boy, I had a great life. You ever just want to get in a truck and drive away? (laughs) And it's to be like, oh, we're gardeners. (laughs) (laughs) No, and and that's like one of the great delights of the show is just like seeing characters' reactions um, to the increasingly impossible amount of stuff that Brett knows. Uh, Finally, two... Uh, TV heavyweights rounding mm-hmm. out this cast. Why don't we talk about the first one, played by Jim Beaver first. Yeah. Uh, who was uh, Ellsworth on Deadwood. Um, you might remember Ellsworth as the guy who's like, well, uh, uh, I don't know, ma'am, but uh, I, I feel, uh, well, I, I think. <laughs> Great character. Yeah. We, lo- we love Ellsworth. Sweet, I love Ellsworth. A sweetheart. He's playing, um, <laughs> he's playing a character named Nick Vucevic. Or is, I guess they pronounce it Vukovic. Yeah. But I think... If, if he's Nick and he appears to be like from the Balkans of some Yeah, stripe. with the name v- Vukovic, he has to be. So what do you think Nick is short for? Is it I, Nicholas? It's, no, no, no. It's got to be Nikola. He's, Jim Beaver is playing a character named Nikola Vucevic. <laughs> yeah, and his role in the cast is, I guess, that like he's a really good like interior scorer. But um, as far as like a, a, a rim protector... You really want to get another character to no, his, his all-star you. days are done for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> now he was um, Brett's dad's former partner who mm-hmm. is sort of like, you know, an uncle figure to Brett, but who is, you know, he has his secrets. He has his connections uh, and yeah. he may not be trustworthy. Jim Beaver, just a delightful presence always. Absolutely. Um, what you love about Jim Beaver is that every character he plays, uh, looks like they could be called Jim Beaver. What you love about Jim Beaver is that he looks like he could be called Jim Beaver. And yeah. he is. <laughs> One of the great, just like, you know, uh, combinations of fate and luck when it comes to names. <laughs> anyway, uh, and our last character is the Shadow Man. The Shadow Man himself, Conrad Detweiler. Played who- by... Jonathan Banks. That's right. Um, pre-Breaking Bad, Jonathan Banks. His catchphrase is, For every decision, there's a consequence. Decision. Consequence. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, he is sort of... We later, we later learn more of a middle manager of the conspiracy, which is a yeah. cool development. But basically, when the day ends uh, in a sort of neutral state, Brett will get kidnapped and brought to this extremely scary-looking quarry. The cool, the coolest fucking location we've seen in any of these. It looks insane. It looks like you know, goddamn, the location location manager went fucking crazy on this one. Very Michael Mann. Yeah, well, the whole show is very Michael Mann. We're gonna talk about Michael Mann mm-hmm. quite a bit as we go on. Yeah. Um. No, he's great. He's he's just great at playing 
a scary guy. <laughs> yeah. The guy that like you at first think is like the head of the conspiracy, but then it turns out he's like a middle manager, but still like a very terrifying and effective middle manager. Yeah. Um, so that's our cast. Not a dead among them. Um, some of them a little more instrumental, but like there's nobody in this cast that we looked at and we're like, oh, it's kind of a drag when you're on screen. Um, but we've sort of hinted at it um, a number of times. And what I would like to do officially is just sort of run through very quickly, like what happens exactly in that first loop, which is like the first half of the first episode. The, the neutral state. As exactly. I to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, if he doesn't do anything else, this is just what'll happen. And from there, we'll kind of do like a light touch about like cool developments. Yeah. Okay. So he wakes up at 6, 18 a.m. at his girlfriend Rita's place. He stops a girl from getting hit by a bus. He finds signs of forced entry at his own apartment. He's got six blank messages from Jennifer on his answering machine, plus one from Damien uh, talking about getting hit at a safe house overnight, like Esther mentioned. Um, before he can listen to two remaining messages, he's arrested by a SWAT team led by Choi and Spivak. He learns he's being framed for murder. They've got his prints planted on a murder weapon. They've got false eyewitness testimony of him and being And they there. found his murder weapon in his apartment. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and as he's being transferred around between, um, you know, like the station and the holding, uh, he notices two guys surveilling him. He learns that the cops can't find Rita, that she's missing. Um, he learns about Jennifer's bruises on her arm. And uh, his partner, Andrea, is being investigated by Internal Affairs, specifically by Chad, uh, who stops to gloat at Brett and be like, damn, I guess you're not going to be able to make our 3 p.m. meeting. Uh, then guys come into a cell. Take him to the quarry. Shadow Man shows him footage of uh, his dudes murdering Rita and then threatens that, okay, you have other loved ones, we'll kill Jennifer next if you don't confess, and injects him with a mysterious sedative, and then the day repeats. And the, the show plays a really great trick at the end there because mm-hmm. you sort of naturally assume that whatever he gets injected with is what causes the time loop. Yeah. And that that will just be explored later. But in, I think it's in literally the second episode. Mm hmm. Um, his plan is to basically like, if I stay awake for 24 hours, you know, and I don't, and I'm just driving and I don't get captured and they don't knock me out. Um, if I just invent four loco. Yes. Then, then I'll be fine. Uh, and there's this great double reveal of one, he's just driving in this car trying to stay awake and the clock hits 6, 18 AM and he's just back in bed. And also because what he was driving away from was like a shootout in mm-hmm. that loop. He's just bleeding out in the yeah. bed because he retains the injuries he's collected when when the day resets. And that was the moment, I think. Um, the pilot's like, it's solid, but it's very like workmanlike. It has a very thankless job of setting a lot of stuff up. But that was the moment like towards the end of the second episode um, that I think like sort of uh, made us go like, holy shit, the show really has the juice. Yeah, absolutely. It is. I mean, we'll talk about the we'll talk about the ratings. Yeah. <laughs> I, I say I say with deep sadness in my voice. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can see why. You know, the pilot maybe did not entice people enough, but it just mm-hmm. it, it hits the ground running so hard with yeah. what the actual premise is. Um, yeah, but like I mean, just from all the stuff that we mentioned in that uh, like little rundown of the pilot, like every little detail there does become part of the conspiracy in some type of way even like the saving of the girl at the bus um and like you know i i can find that type of like rigorous attention to like set up and pay off like annoying um like 
the work of Edgar Wright, for example. Not the biggest fan there. Um, you have probably noticed that already uh, if you've listened to the last broadcast. But no, it can like kind of wear thin. But like, it works so well in this because it'll be things that you will remember vaguely. That it's like, oh yeah, he never really followed up on that like eight yeah. episodes ago. And now it comes roaring back. It works so well because of the sort of long timeline of, of a TV show, mm-hmm. like a 13 hour TV show. You can have those moments of like, oh my God, that thing from 10 episodes ago actually ties in, which I think can feel a little more strained and obnoxious when it's that thing from 30 minutes ago <laughs> yeah. in a movie where it's like, yeah, I fucking, I remember, of course that was going to be part of it. Yeah. You, know, you expect on a TV show for details to be dropped and not be significant the whole way through. Mm-hmm. So it's thrilling on this show when it's like, wait, that's been important the whole time. Like, it's just so cool. Yeah. Um, it's so, one thing that's really funny about his first, uh, few loops is that on his first few loops he just keeps doing the guiltiest things possible it's in order so to try cool. to like uh, stop himself from being framed he does the Keenan Peele Rappler confession skit completely on accident <laughs> like when, after he learns that they've hidden the murder weapon in his apartment the first thing he does on the next loop is just get it and dump it in in this in like the ocean off a pier mm-hmm. and of course he gets arrested and they're like uh, hey we found the murder weapon we saw you dumping it in the ocean <laughs> damn it it's it's so cool and like even aside from that like when he's still getting acclimated to the idea of like how to use his knowledge of previous loops productively um there's so many instances where he'll like go up to someone and be like hey listen you need to do xyz or your life will be in danger and the person he's talking to will just be like is that a threat asshole (laughs) um but yeah there's like so many like things that he tries that just like prove completely fruitless um because they are like the immediate things that you would try in a situation like this, right? Like, oh, well, that's the evidence they have against me. I'll make sure they don't have that evidence. Or like the third loop, he just tries to take Rita on like a, a day trip and get the fuck out of the city. But like the Fensick and Buckhalter, the two shadow goons, already have like a, a, a roadblock set up. And he has to like bust through it. And that's how he gets shot. Um or, like, again, when he manages to not get caught by the cops all day, uh, Damien's guys will eventually just find him and jam him into a trunk. Yeah. It, it, and this is an example of, like, this show so beautifully captures video gaminess mm-hmm. in, an, in a time when, like, a lot of video games weren't uh, capturing this specific element of, like, what they could be. Um, you know, obviously, obviously like stealth games have existed for a long time and in general, in general games that are about like trial and error and retrying with your knowledge of what just happened. But like, I, I love the Hitman games, for example, Mm -hmm. specifically the like recent trilogy. And those games are so much about like entering a space, learning all the rules of where everyone will go if you don't do anything Mm-hmm. And then learning the ways that you can sort of nudge people out of position to set things up in a way that's productive for you. With meaning, like, that lets you kill people. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and this show is, such, like, really beautifully evokes that feeling of, like, you know... The neutral state, like you've been saying. Exactly. Exactly. Like, learning as much as you can about what will happen if he doesn't do anything. And then learning, like, well, what can I do knowing that to change things in a way that will get me information or that will help me save someone, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah. and to the extent that like by the time, like, you know, mid late of the show's run, there's just a scene where he opens a day, just making phone calls to <laughs> set up like, all right, I got, here's the phone call I have to make to save the woman who's getting hit by the bus and this and that. And just like 
setting everything up within 10 minutes yeah so that he can um you know uh get stuff out of the way so he could advance further basically yeah and it's just like it's it is such fascinating storytelling on a mechanical level like uh, it's such a hard premise to deal with for a tv show i think for a movie i think it's easier because you have such a squashed yeah you know timeline basically you don't have that many loops you have to explore you show like four loops kind of in their totality and then like a montage of additional loops and that's kind of how like they work right based most of the time yeah but with the tv show you have to have so much going on to -hmm. justify the fact that you are a tv show um so much to keep track of in terms of like you know what he has to do and one really interesting thing that the show does is that he can to a certain extent change things as he says yeah. the opening, <laughs> as he says at the opening every single time, the day is the same, but, but different, different things, things happen. happen. Um, and what he means by that is like, for example, you know, in the neutral state from the first couple episodes, his partner Andrea like hates him. He, uh, she thinks like you don't like me, you don't trust me, like I kind of want nothing to do with you. Yeah, but like the- you only like reach out to me when you need something from me. Yeah, but eventually he does like learn what's going on with her and help her in a loop and help her figure something out. And when the next loop starts, she trusts him now. Yeah. And she's friendlier with him and she's willing to work with him. And, and it's she not just because... calls him up and is like, hey, something feels different today. I'm going to like get my junkie boyfriend into uh, like rehab um, because that's what like I internal affairs have been holding over me that I've been like doing some corruption on the side to try to bail him out. Yeah. And it's such a like, it's just a, such a cool way to explore like, a time loop story on a very long timeline because it lets you like, especially in a TV show, because it lets characters develop basically um, without giving Brett like too much power over his situation. Like the control that he has over the way people will act, you know, what gets saved basically Mm -hmm. when he reloads is entirely emotional. It's always just like, how can I make the people in my life feel about me? Yeah. How can I preserve, like, you know, their trust in me? And they won't even remember why. No one remembers the time loops but him. Like, Which I think, like, this is one of those situations where I'm so grateful that they didn't get into the mechanics of, like, yes, this is the time loop serum that you were injected <laughs> with by the Manticore Project. And it gives you certain time powers over people. Yeah. <laughs> Press left uh, trigger to enter your time mode. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like it, it, it's obviously like in a, com- we notice we didn't say like sci-fi elements because that idea of like, you can influence a time loop on an emotional level. That's complete bullshit, right? Like, obviously that's, there would be no way that that would make sense on a sci-fi type of like techno bevel explanation, but like, it's fucking cool is what it is. Um, it allows for like, again, relationships with characters to still exist in something that would otherwise be like. He has to reset every day. Yeah. And it's also key that like, you know, there's an episode we're going to talk about um, where it's sort of like a bottle episode, basically, Mm -hmm. where he's trapped in the the IA bullpen. Yeah. And he gives this monologue because he's he's taken Chad hostage on this loop to try and get um, the murder book, you know, the book of, uh, you know, old cases that he has to look through. Yeah. And Chad basically challenges him like, you know. If you know the day is going to reset, why don't you take more chances? Why, you know, why do you care if people get killed? Because you yeah. know it's going to reset. And basically what he says is, I don't know that. 
I don't know what's going on. I don't know that this isn't the last loop I'll ever experience and that if Rita dies, she's not dead for good. You know, I don't know for sure what the consequences of any of my actions will be. Yeah, and there's if, like a hope that he has that like, well, if I solve the case fully, then maybe that'll stop it from looping. But like, he has no fucking idea. Yeah, and it's very counter to the Groundhog Day, you know, idea of a time loop mm. where eventually in that movie, of course... Uh, the main character just takes it for granted that his co- actions don't matter. And there's a whole montage of him, you know, driving off cliffs and, you know, whatever, um, because he trusts that it won't make a difference. But I think it is so smart to, like, keep the emotional stakes of the show really grounded because the main character doesn't take it for granted that the time loop will continue at all. And that can only work because he doesn't know what the, you know, sci-fi bullshit mechanics of it are. Yeah. And it's also just like, it It does really hit home with this idea that like, okay, even if I can reset it, then like, does it actually give me comfort that I've now seen Rita die like three times um, that I can just sort of be like, okay, well, this didn't count, right? Like, mm-hmm. no, I've still experienced that emotionally. Yeah. It's really smart about like what it does to him on an emotional level. Because like, I mean, just as an example, the first couple times after he gets his bearings a little bit, like... Rito does ask him, like, you know, what's going on? You're acting so weird. Like, you need to, like, let me in. And he explains the whole time loop stuff to her. And there's this great conversation he has with her in, like, a motel room where she's just, like, being like, okay, so this is, like, time loop. So we've been to this motel before? And he's like, well, no, not that. Okay, but we've had this conversation before. Well, no, not that either. And it's this thing where, like, he starts to realize basically, like, I can't just continue explaining this every day. Yeah. um, Because it takes so fucking much out of me. And so, like, over time, he gets more disconnected from Rita. You know, like, there's still very charming, like, updates that he gives her. Well, he'll, like, you know, kind of talk about the case in, like, a veiled way where he's like, "Mm, you know, I'm worried about this case that I have because there's a witness that'll be in danger and I got to find out a way to protect her. Yeah. Um, and it's really sweet whenever that happens, but like he does drift away from her just because like that sense of, I don't know if I have it in me to create that bond with her every single time. But it leads to her over the course of the loops, trusting him less and less, Yeah, which, you know, builds to sort of, which is, which is such good storytelling because she starts the first day just like ride Ride or die, ride or die for him. Like you know, totally committed in the way that like, you know, when the video game gives you like, you know, when you get Ashley in Mass Effect 1, <laughs> it's like, all right, that's the default companion, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's such cool storytelling to be like, because he pays less and less attention to her over the course of the loops, she starts growing more and more disconnected from him and trusting him less and feeling like, you know, yeah. Uh, it, it's like the, the first couple times she's just like, when she hears that he's framed for murder, she's just like, no that's absolute bullshit that would never happen but like 10 times in when she's like seen him act like really weird because of all his foreknowledge of the loops is making him like act in these like strange inexplicable ways she starts to be like no he would never do that but it's obviously like a lot less um uh, you know kind of confident in that and it's i mean that's not the only like way that he can like mess things up like in the very first loop we mentioned that he saves that girl from like getting hit by a bus mm-hmm. and um you know he the next loop uh Rita works as like a nurse right so he's like in the hospital like escorting her to work um to just like make sure she's going to be safe 
And he sees that uh, girl who got hit by the bus, like, brought in on a stretcher. And he's like, oh, damn, I didn't stop for coffee today. I didn't save her. And so over the next several loops, we just see little instances of him, like, figuring out more and more efficient ways to get her not hit by the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, In the same way that, like, Esther talks about it as, like, a hitman thing, what it makes me think of is uh, myself being a much less cool type of gamer. (laughs) Idle games! Where part of the joy of those is that, like, you don't just sort of go faster through kind of like the loop structures of those um, as you progress through the game, but like you automate things that were manual before and things that like would have taken him driving somewhere and having like a whole conversation or a whole like investigative little arc of an episode to figure out. He now just has like the knowledge to like solve that little part of the plot by doing one of those phone calls that Esther mentioned of like, okay, it's 6.20 a.m., I'm calling you, I am telling you, yeah, I know who's hit you at the safe house, stay away from this intersection, because that's where, you know, like, skinheads are going to try to kill you tonight. Yeah. Um, And it's so cool, just all of that shit. (laughs) Um, We were worried about this episode, because uh, this is a show that's really good, but it's not really good, like Reunion was, in a way where it's really funny about it. No, it is not. It is not um, amusing. I mean, it, it's funny, you know. Like, yeah. it's there's funny moments, but it is it is not like, you know, whooping at the TV. Yeah. Until the end. <laughs> it, it gets there, but it, it is just for so much of it, like just like a really, really good and effective, you know, narrative. So we hope you all don't mind us talking about like time travel mechanics for two hours. <laughs> Whoops. Remember Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah. That, now that was a time loop. Um, yeah, uh, Esther, uh, relishes any chance to bring up, uh, Tom Cruise that she possibly can. No, I don't. You're a huge Tom Cruise fan. I wouldn't say that. Esther wakes up every morning and she looks in the eye and says that, you know, he's crazy, but he's saving cinema. (laughs) (laughs) And he's actually the most dudes rock guy of all time. Except maybe for the protagonist from Tenet. Else He's think, disgusting does, off does, mic. Does anyone else think actually Tenet's about being have friends with your best friend? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I use that phrase all the time, have friends with your best friend. Yeah, that's and that's what Tenet's actually about. Um Yeah. Anyway. No, there's um there's so many like good fucking episodes is the thing. Like it's very tempting for us to just like run through every single one of these and be like, oh, remember that fucking cool moment? But um just a couple of highlights. Uh, there is an episode where he is tracking down, like, names that he thinks are maybe connected to the conspiracy, and he finds, uh, Detweiler the Shadow Man, um, just, like, knocks on his door, and the immediate first thing he does is, like, punch him in the face, cut to commercial break, mm-hmm. cut back for commercial break, play him, punch him in the face again. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's a great, like, I mean, a classic... It's sort of related to Edge of Tomorrow, actually, which has one of the great time loop movie moments, which is when, um, you know, all of the soldiers are doing up, uh, having to do push-ups, and Tom Cruise is trying to escape by rolling underneath a truck that's driving by. Mm-hmm. And the first time he does it, he just gets fucking squished. <laughs> and then it immediately, like, five second runs through the montage of the day leading up to that again. He's like, all right, let me try this again. And he gets it right. The de- This is a great example of that moment where the first time he sees Detweiler open the door, he just punches him in the face. And the Detweiler's wife appears with a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> and so then it just cuts to him on the next loop trying again. And like, all right, I'll be the nice guy this time. We'll just talk. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and that also, like, doesn't work because he's, like, trying to, like, you know, negotiate with him in some way or, like, get a sense of why you're doing this. And that water just, like, completely stonewalls him, right? Like, he waits until the wife leaves um, and then he, like, you know, holds him at gunpoint and that water's just like, you know, oh, yeah, because nobody's ever held me at gunpoint before. And, um, you know, it's like, oh, fuck, that didn't work either. So the, the third time he just comes back and, like, hands him a duffel bag full of, like, all the evidence he's collected and be like, that's all of it. That's all I have. You win. Just leave me out of this, please. Um, and based on that, we get one of the coolest death scenes that I've ever seen on TV. Yes, because ba- basically in this loop, Detweiler gets burned by the conspiracy. Yeah. For, they're like, uh, oh, you let him come to your house and yeah. you didn't like do anything about it. So they're at the quarry, which is always, when they're at the quarry, let me page you this visual picture. It's the middle of the night and it's lit by the headlights from these gigantic dump trucks full of like silt. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're bringing him to the quarry and, um, <laughs> you know, he thinks everything's good. But then all of a sudden, the sort of bodyguards who are stationed by the dump trucks all at once, like step back out of view behind them yeah and he's like what's going on and then they reveal like you're done and they one of the dump trucks just starts lifting up and covering him in sand yeah he gets like kneecapped and then like as he's like you know trying to crawl back to his feet just the sand just starts pouring on him and they're just like this is how we bury our secrets it's fucking awesome and of course it's the time loop show so he's just back next time but it's such a cool image yeah and it's yeah that that's like kind of I, i think the show does a good job of playing with is like we can just kill off characters in fun ways and bring them back and it's fine. You can do season finale shit every episode. Yes, effectively. Exactly, <laughs> like, exactly. You know, like season, episode two into like uh, flash forward. It's like what we knew about the conspiracy is that like maybe they kind of sort of exist. Um, episode two of this, what we know about the conspiracy is that like if they're backed into anything even remotely approaching a corner, uh, they will like bust through police uh, barricades with, like, heavy ordnance. And it's like, yeah, you can do that shit if everything's gonna reset. Um, But yeah, that moment of, like, the uh, Shadow Man death was the last thing that live viewers ever saw. They they cancelled it right after that episode. Yeah, and fucking imagine being a live viewer and seeing that and be like, thank God that shit's off the air. <laughs> I'm done with that. Millions and millions of people said exactly this. Time for reruns of the George Lopez show. Woo! Anyway. Um, so yeah. What else uh, is, is there as far as like really good episodes? Oh, there's the other guy who's looping. Yeah, that's a great, like, of course there has to be another guy who's looping, right? Yeah. Um, this guy's first introduced, again, a great example of the show just bringing something back from three episodes ago. Mm-hmm. He's first introduced because Hopper's just brought in, like, in one of the times he gets arrested. And there's just a crazy guy being brought into the cell with him. And Hopper says something to him. And the crazy guy just bites him. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's like, it's like, oh, you and me, we're kindred spirits. We're flies in ointment. And Hopper's just so desperate at this point for, like, anything approaching that level of, like, kinship that he's just like... You're time looping too? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Here, give me your arm. And he just bites him. <laughs> um, but like a couple episodes later, he just runs into that guy while he's like tracking down leads at like a country club. And, you know, the guy, you know, kind of implies in, in ways, because he's not like, you know, entirely lucid at this point. But he talks about like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going through the same thing. Like, you know, it's been today for a very long time. 
And Hopper's just like, oh shit, this guy's going through the same thing. Like, maybe he can point me towards a person who's, like, doing this to me. Um, and he finds, like, the guy's doctor um, who explains that, like, oh yeah, he um, was, like, he had, like, a, an epileptic type condition. We performed surgery on him to try to fix it. And, you know, it worked, but it also, like, broke his sense of, like, short-term memory. So now, like, he thinks that the day is repeating over and over again. And he can't, like, distinguish those things anymore. And so Hopper's like, damn, I, I didn't find someone who's a kindred spirit at all. But, like, at least I can, like, give this man peace and, like, remand him to, like, the care of this doctor. And, you know, the, the guy is being like, oh, I'm sorry for how I was treating you. And Hopper's like, no, don't worry, it's okay. And right as the gate to the doctor's house is about to close, he says what? I'm sorry I bit you. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. Esther yelled so loud for that moment. It's it's the show is so good at doing cliffhangers that the next episode will not follow up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, I I maybe we should get more into it. Like this because of the structure of the show, the, the way it works, um, or not even really because of it. Because I think the way you would expect to do a time loop show is to just be like. All right, he will just keep building on the things he learns in a very direct sense over and over. Yeah. But I think it's to the show's credit that it doesn't do that. It will be a lot of, you know, sort of out of nowhere twists of things he suddenly realizes he has to deal with in a way that makes it so that, like, we've been talking about something from episode three will turn out to be really key in episode 10. Yeah. And, like, the ending of episode five won't really come back for another couple. And it's like... You know, maybe if you're a live viewer, you find that kind of frustrating because it's 2006 and you're a fucking idiot <laughs> watching network television, you know, because you, you, you thought the war in Iraq was awesome. Um, <laughs> and you're really invested in the swift boats. Yeah, um, absolutely. But no, like, you know, obviously maybe you don't like that if that's you. But it is such a cool way to structure a TV show, which yeah. we think of as like a traditionally very linear medium. Yeah, and it's it's so cool as well, because like, like you said, the context is always changing, right? So like, things that he tries to anticipate in one loop might not work out remotely similar in the way the next loop, and so he has to like kind of go back to the, the drawing board and not benefit from that hindsight. Um, you know, kind of like a, an NBA GM who's like surveyed about uh, how the next season is going to go, who keeps getting the same shit wrong over and over and over again. That's right, welcome to the Smash McDouble episode 6. I, I'm. You just know that there were some listeners who heard us talk for 30 seconds about Nikola Vucevic and were like, wait, why aren't they doing it? <laughs> <laughs> and they were scared. But don't well, worry. Here, well, that's here we kind are. of how they do it in Daybreak, where it's like, that, that's a little thread that's introduced in episode two, but it doesn't come back until episode eight. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about this. Every year before the season starts... Uh, and the NBA asks the general managers of all 30 teams to do a survey. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of those going back 20 years are available to read. Uh, so you can see people's answers about who they thought the best players were at different positions and stuff like that. Yeah. And there are some just awesomely uh, wrong things <laughs> yeah. that the people running NBA teams thought uh, that we would love to talk about. Um, yeah, for example, uh, every year between 2012-2013 and 2018-2019, uh, the GMs were convinced that LeBron James was going to win MVP. I just love the idea of him getting seven MVPs in a row. Yeah. Instead, in that stretch, he got exactly one, and it was the first one. Yeah. <laughs> and he just had never won an MVP again. Um, 
do it. I want to live in a timeline where LeBron James has seven consecutive MVPs. <laughs> a really funny one all the time is um, which player, which rookie. Mm-hmm. Um, will we'll be the best player in five years. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so the one from five years ago, for example, um, DeAndre Ayton and Jaron Jackson Jr. Yeah. tied for first uh, from that rookie class. Coming at a, a distant third was Luka Doncic. Yeah, they, they believed that Luka Doncic would win rookie of the year, but that he would get outstripped by like five years later, um, which I guess he had like the more international experience than they were betting on, but it's like... Do you think Lucas Gabe relies on youth? That's not how I would describe him. <laughs> a really funny one also is um the, the which rookie will be the best in five years is just always a good one. So like yeah. in in Giannis's draft class, which rookie will be the best in five years? That would be Victor Oladipo, um, mm-hmm. and then Cody Zeller, Anthony Bennett, Ben McLemore, and Kelly Olynyk. Um, Giannis got at least one vote. Yeah, uh, but he did not make the top five. He did not even make uh, the top five for which rookie was the biggest steal at where he was selected. That went to Kelly Olynyk again. Yeah. Again, just, these people don't know fucking anything. Anything about anything. No, I mean, okay. So with the, like, which rookie is going to be the most, like, effective in five years? Like, especially things that, like, ask you to cast things, like, that far ahead. I get it. Like, I absolutely don't begrudge in those ones. Um, especially when, like, I think they used to ask, like, who will be the best player in the league in 10 years? And with that, it's like, well, how the fuck could you know? Like, it's probably somebody who's not even in the league yet, right? Yeah. Which makes me, like, wish that some GM had just, like, made up a player. It was like, I think that Solomon Hawk will be the best player in that year. <laughs> He's currently six years old. Yeah. I think Isaiah Outlaw will be the point guard of the future. <laughs> just, like, make up the coolest, like, my career name you can and be yeah. like, oh, it's that guy. They also love not knowing any, like... Betting way too hard on superstars uh, mm-hmm. in a way that's funny. Like uh, the year that um, LeBron went to the Lakers, they were asked which one player acquisition will make the biggest impact. 97% said LeBron to the Lakers. Yeah. 3% said Kawhi Leonard to Toronto. Um, they did win the championship that year. Yeah. And like LeBron, notably, before he got a chance to like legion the situation up, um, I think like that team won like two more games than the previous year. <laughs> His first year on the Lakers was a disaster. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really cool how they do that. They love assuming that like any point guard who knows how to pass the ball very well will be like a really good head coach eventually. Yeah, there's something in that. Like, there's something, some sort of psychological thing where they see a good playmaking point guard and they're like, "Oh, right, you know about basketball." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Steve, when they asked this in the early 2000s, Steve Nash constantly got. Yeah. a lot of votes in 2006-07 he topped the list which active player will make the best head coach someday i don't know if you know this about steve nash's coaching history um it, he, he's, he's really bad at it he's not good <laughs> yeah. at it because just the skills required to pass a basketball and coach a sports team are actually completely different yeah just imagine like uh nicole Jokic becoming a head coach after he retires and just sort of be like i don't know guys you play basketball go out there and uh, you know you just just i don't care just (laughs) you know they got the offense they got defense it's fine (laughs) um yeah no they they love making wild assumptions about things um Anthony Edwards was wildly underrated in his rookie year because he had just made a joke about, like, I'd rather be playing football. So, like, despite being the number one pick, they just 
barely have him in the top five for like rookie of the year and also best player from a draft class in five years. Um, and, and let's like, they'll just draw so much inference from like a single thing like that where it's like no a, a player can be funny and also very good at basketball they also just like so super take for granted like when they want something to happen they will just try to will it into reality mm-hmm. like there's a question about which player will have a breakout season this year mm-hmm. and anthony davis got votes five years in a row yeah <laughs> and it's like guys it's not gonna happen i'm sorry yeah carl anthony towns got like two years in a row like the most votes for um which player would you want to build your uh, your franchise around if you were starting one? Which, like, that was an insane period, like, right as the Warriors dynasty was, like, getting big of, like, oh, anybody who can shoot that you wouldn't expect to be able to shoot, that's the future. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, last bit here is the pure encapsulation of NBA media's I don't want to play with you anymore <laughs> mindset is the question of who is the best young core in the NBA. They only started asking that in 2019, where they said the Sixers, then it was the Pelicans, then the Pelicans again, then the Hawks, then the Cavs, then the Thunder. And it's like, oh, you give up on all of these teams incredibly quickly. Um, There's no hope for like, okay, this can build into something interesting. Obviously they do age out of being young cores eventually, but you know, this is now, six separate teams or five separate teams over six years um none of which have like really gotten far in the playoffs uh but that like people were super convinced about at one point and then dropped the instant something shinier came along all right folks if you've been slamming that skip 30 seconds button um <laughs> now is the time it's it's okay you can you can keep listening this has been the smash with double um the nba season starts in two days as we're recording this So get ready for more topical discussion (laughs) coming at you next month. Absolutely. Uh, Where were we talking about uh, Daybreak? I think we had like one or two more like episodes to mention. Yes, we should. Um, Yeah. So I I think that like one other really good episode that is just sort of like a great example of how the video game mechanics work here is when he goes to visit like a corrupt warden in um like a a prison up in like northern california um because he's like been led to believe that maybe a guy who's imprisoned there was responsible for like this murder from 91 that he's looking into um but like you know that would have had to mean that he was let out of the prison or escape from it clandestinely somehow so the first time he shows up there he just goes like as a cop right and gets stonewalled and immediately like starts to understand like oh shit the warden's corrupt okay I'll go in and act like I'm part of the conspiracy next time. Um, and so he drops, like, Detweiler's name the second time around. Um, and then, you know, when it's asked, like, how do you know Detweiler? He just is really vague and it says, like, we have certain mutual interests. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, within, like, four of those answers or so, like, the warden's just like, yeah, you don't know Detweiler. <laughs> You're just making this shit up. So the, the third time, he just pops in as many, like, little details as he can. Where he's like, Oh, I'm here because Fensick and Buckhalter were busy. It was like, you know him. He's always talking about decision and consequence <laughs> and how serious he is. <laughs> and it's just such a great little, like, uh, uh, manifestation of that, like, video game mindset. Yeah, it exa- it is, it gives you the exact same feeling as, like, reloading a scene over and over to do the right dialogue <laughs> options. Yeah. Uh, we are playing Disco Elysium, and we are waiting until we hear that very pleasant, dice-got-it-right sound. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
Um, but yeah, probably the best episode of the show. Yes. Uh, episode 11. Yeah. Um, what's another interesting thing structurally about the show is that Brett solves the murder in episode 10. Mm-hmm. Um, he identifies the trigger man and he gets that guy arrested. He clears his name. Yeah. That does not stop the loop. No. Um, so in episode 11, basically what he decides is, look, you know, I, I, I don't know what else I have to do at this point. So if I'm st- still going to be stuck in this loop, I might as well just like go on vacation with Rita every day and have a nice day because, you know, if there's nothing else I can do, then just fuck it. Um, yeah. And it leads to this amazing montage of them going to Mexico every single day. And, you know, uh, eventually, you know, he starts out enjoying it. He's relaxing. Rita's loving it. But he just gets like sick of it after a while. It, re- it starts to curdle. Um in terms of like, you know, over the course of the show, you know, the day is the same, but different things happen. But every time, <laughs> every time he goes on vacation, yeah, this is it's, it's just the same thing over and over. The same sort of like boringly pleasant, you know, drone basically, mm-hmm. um, and it just totally curdles. And it's sort of like eventually he gets so upset that it, it sets Rita off in a way that sort of launches yeah. into the final arc of the show in terms of Rita not trusting him. Yeah. Um, and it is just like, so like really beautifully done and beautifully played by Tay Diggs. And, and by my Bloodgood, right? Cause yeah. there's this like this heartbreaking scene where like he, after being pressed on it, like, Hey, for somebody who suggested this day, like you don't seem to be enjoying it. Um, and like, she finally like presses him and is like, what's wrong? And he explains the loop stuff. He explains that, like, the conspiracy is still happening back in Los Angeles, but he just doesn't care about it because, like, he tried his best and it just didn't change anything. And Rita's horrified by that. Um, She's just like, well, like, even if it doesn't change, like, you have to go back and, like, save those people every day. Like, otherwise, you know, they're just going to be, like, stuck in their awful situations. Yeah, because he's come to this point where he's trying to explain, like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Like, it's the, the day is going to reset, like, mm-hmm. inevitably. But Rita is just like, I can't believe you would be so callous. And it is, it's it's, it's, it's interesting because he's developed from this point that we talked about early in the series of just, like, not, I can't take for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't take any chances, with the people in my life. But now he's just at a point where he's like, fuck everyone but Rita. She's with me. She's fine. Yeah. And just like, I don't, you know, I have done everything I can for them and it doesn't make a difference. And Rita's horrified to be in that position of like somebody whose joy is like at the expense of everyone else's day being horrible. And like, you know, Brett like really brushes her off and he's like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like you won't remember this tomorrow. And she just like looks at him and says, want to bet? Mm-hmm. And the way that, like, you know, he's had these, like, loyalty mission mechanics before with, like, his partner, Detective Battle, he gets the reverse loyalty mission with Andrea, or, like, or sorry, with, with Rita, where, like, the next day she wakes up and she just immediately starts to feel like something's wrong with Brett. Like, you know, she, she literally says, like, you're not the same man that I went to sleep with last night. Um, and from there, like, the day just gets so much worse for him. Yeah. Because, like, she starts to cooperate with the police more. Um, like, he realizes that, the, that there's more stuff with the conspiracy that, like, he hasn't even scratched the surface of yet. Like, he kind of got lucky and identified, like, a way to kind of make it stop for that day. But he didn't, like, find a way to, like, make the wheels of this, like, big machine stop in any real way. Exactly, yeah. And again, it's just, like, 
really cool structurally because like you know you don't know what the scope of the conspiracy is until until you do Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think it's it's fair to have every expectation of like especially in a tv show to have every expectation of like once he solves the murder mission complete and then we move on to the next thing like next season um but no like the story doesn't stop once he gets (laughs) you know done with that yeah and what's especially cool is that like even in the finale where he finally escapes the day um, and it's not even something that he was like consciously trying to do. It's just that he's sort of like, you know, was like knocked out and he's been like struggling and he's been like going through the night desperately trying to like make all these things line up. And he realizes like, Oh fuck, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. The loops always restart at like six. So like I fucking made it. But even from there, it's like, Oh shit. That previous day was just the setup for the conspiracy, right? And like, I now have all the context I need for that setup, but I still have to, this morning, prevent the conspiracy from like, uh, you know, uh, uh, carrying out its ultimate mission yeah. of like taking out this judge who's gonna like stand up to like, you know, the political corruption and like, you know, framing it on everyone and maintaining control of the entire city of Los Angeles in these very shady ways. Um, and it's so cool that like, you know, just even escaping the day isn't the thing that leads him to, like, the, the final victory. And it's, you know, we've been talking about how, like, those stakes are that, like, oh, well, if somebody dies, he can just reset it or whatnot. It reintroducing those stakes at the end works surprisingly well in terms of, like, I was legitimately thinking to myself as we were watching, it's like, oh, fuck. If characters die now, then they're dead. Yes. It's like, yeah, dumbass, that's how TV works. <laughs> like that's introduced now in a way that like really feels like immediate and terrifying yeah um so yeah just amazingly plotted show amazingly like considered show in terms of like all the the mechanics of it absolute delight to watch from moment to moment um are there any other things that you would want to like point out as far as like what we love about the show um the score is amazing the, the score is so fucking Michael Mann. Lo- yeah, it is. It is like straight out of fucking like Heat or Collateral or something. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it's a Los Angeles. It's score. a Los Angeles neo noir. You get those trumpets. Yeah, you know those wailing trumpets that you're picturing in your head right now. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, like it for the most part looks really good. Um, you know, by the standards of like what a 2006 like network uh, TV show could be, but like. Uh, being a neo-noir, it has, like, some great chiaroscuro throughout. Um, the guy who did the cinematography on this, like, shot, like, 90 episodes of the X-Files. Um, mm-hmm. so that makes perfect sense to me. Um, obviously all the performances are delightful. Um, but yeah, like, the question that I come away with this from is, like, we're talking about how great this show was, and we've been gushing about it just over and over again. But... If it had been a hit, what the fuck do you do with a season two of this? That's the thing. Like, you know, when Reunion ended, we were devastated because it just cuts off in the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. This show has an ending. It was canceled (laughs) after 13 episodes, but it is a perfectly self-contained story. Like, there is kind of a sequel hook. Yeah, because it's like he gets um, kind of like the guy in whose name the conspiracy was being carried out, like a city councilman um, who was like running for Senate or something like that. Um, but he doesn't get the guy, like, above him who, like, sort of pulls the strings that make the city run in this, like, corrupt way. And, like, you know, he ends up finding that, uh, 
uh, Chad Shelton is in on the conspiracy and Chad gets arrested, but then he breaks out. So it's like, okay, there's like a couple teasers for a season two, but it's like, what do you do from that? Because like, even if there's a whole new conspiracy that you can add that's like equally fascinating, compelling, like you've already tread so much of the possible ground about what it does to him psychologically and emotionally. Yep. Um, so he had like an idea potentially for what it would be, um, which is that like, you would want it to be about another character who's experiencing a time loop. Um, maybe they're like somebody who has a more direct stake in like dismantling the citywide conspiracy, like, you know, a crusading journalist or some shit like that. Yeah. Um, and then like, maybe they encounter Brett, they intersect with Brett, but only in like specific, you know, versions of the day. And like, he can give them a little bit of context about like, oh yeah, this looping shit happened to me like six months ago or whatever. Um, but it does sort of make it clear that like, look, we're very glad for what we have, you know, we're, we're not expecting this. We weren't expecting us to get another season. Um, and we're not crushed by it the same way that we were with something like Reunion. Yeah. It, it, and, and. It is sad that that it, you know, didn't make it. But like, as a mini series, I loved it. Like it, it is, yeah. it, it 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 starts, it ends. I don't feel like I've I lost out on anything basically. Yeah. And uh, the people involved, you know, who made the show went on to have pretty good careers, as we'll talk about later. So exactly. It's like, you know, pretty happy ending, all things considered, for Daybreak. Yeah. So I mean. We've been kind of gesturing at it as always, but let's just do the quick rundown of like why this show failed in the various ways that it did. Um, I think a big part of it is just that like the same way that Reunion made a lot of assumptions about how Lost had changed people's viewing habits, that they would be so willing to like carry over information from episode to episode in these really intricate ways um david also made that assumption and it just wasn't true yeah um adam baldwin actually had a really astute observation about this yeah that like it's it's not just that like you know uh it requires a lot of like uh watching every episode in sequence and getting all that carried over information um but it also like plays interestingly with commercial breaks where it's like yeah i mean this show knows how to end a scene like, you know, we mentioned yeah. that cut where it's like, punch him in the face, commercial break, come back. He's still beating his ass. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it is a situation where if you're just watching it in that traditional week over week, 42 minutes, commercial breaks format, then like, you just lose so much information and it becomes so hard to care. Um, but like, if this was, if this came out in 2013 and was on Netflix and was released all at once, yeah, it would have fucking punished. This this is so perfectly suited to the binge model. And another thing is like, even if you weren't binging it, even if it was released today, and you were able to watch episodes that you missed on Hulu or whatever, like it would have such a tremendous impact on just just the ability to absorb the show as it's meant to be seen. Yes. Um. You know, in 2006, if you missed an episode, you're fucked. Like, yeah. you can't go to, <laughs> you can't go online and it's just posted the next day. That just wasn't how it worked back then. Yeah. Um, you know, you, maybe you could go on iTunes, although in my research, it seems like the show just was not on iTunes. <laughs> yeah, that was a big deal when Lost was on iTunes and you could yeah. do that. That's one reason why Lost continued to be really successful. Daybreak did not get that same fortune, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's... <sighs> The other thing that we mentioned, like, with the the pilot being something that, like, 
it has a very thankless job, right? Um, it is probably the weakest episode of the show. And a big part of why that is, is because like, it is about the neutral state. It is kind of inherently showing you like the least interesting version of this loop, mm -hmm. such that like every subsequent version can be, you know, a more interesting version of the loop. Um, but what it means is that like, it has places to be. It's really propulsive. Um, but like in a very workmanlike type of way. Yeah. And we get so little context into the characters. Everything is kind of like in medias res. It is very much like we don't pause to learn about like too much about the dynamic between like Brett and Andrea. We don't learn that much about like Brett's family dynamic. Like it's sort of only something that like comes up like I think in implicit dialogue, implicit dialogue in like episode two that um, Brett's sister Jennifer like doesn't even know that he's dating Rita. Um, but like things will just sort of get like revealed in the course of episodes like that. It doesn't situate you. It doesn't do flashbacks. It doesn't do any type of like real context setting. And that is like for all that we as like, you know, uh, media obsessive dorks can roll with that. Like if you are somebody who like loves watching network procedurals, like that is so hostile and alien to like the concept of how these shows like ease you into the world. Yeah. Um, it's important to note, by the way, um, they didn't get screwed over by the network like a lot of shows we talk about, right? No. <laughs> um, Daybreak had every chance, you know? Yeah. Premiered in a good, good time slot, didn't take weird, you know, uh, mm -hmm. all of a sudden breaks week to week. Um, it just... People just didn't like it. Let's, let's talk about my research now. This is the time for yeah. Esther's segment. So we talked about how it aired on ABC as a mid-season replacement for Lost after the pod. Mm -hmm. um, it started with a two-hour premiere. What we right now is the pod. This is, this is the kind of the new pod. This is the new pod. <laughs> um, it started with a two-hour premiere on November 15th, which was one week after the pod ended. Just immediately, if you're looking for Lost, you turn on ABC, you're seeing Daybreak. Premiere two uh 10.2 million viewers solid yeah. the last pod episode that aired the week before it had 17.1 million viewers but you know it's mm -hmm. a new show it's starting out you know not everything's a hit right away you build an audience i mean i if i had to guess i think a lot of people um tune into that one because they were expecting loss to be in the time slot yeah exactly that is the advantage that it was given <gasps> Um, you know, it, it in that time slot, Criminal Minds and CSI New York beat it, but, um, you know, it did better than Medium. So, like, it's a, off to a really solid start, right? Mm -hmm. Week two, viewership, craters, 5.1 million viewers. Damn. Um, like, literally half of, of the premiere. It lost uh, to an airing of the film Cheaper by the Dozen on Fox at the same time. That but, sucks. you know... It's the day before Thanksgiving, no, you know? Esther, stop, stop talking in that voice. You're giving me false hope. <laughs> they can dance back, you know? They, Shut they up. So episode four, uh, week three, we're down to 4.7 million viewers. Mm. Uh, it's getting absolutely crushed in its time slot. Yeah. Uh, in true insult to injury moment, Daybreak this week is outpaced in viewers, not just by the show that leads into it, but by an episode of the News Magazine 2020 which airs after it at 10 p.m. And this pattern holds true 
for the remainder of time that Daybreak is on the air. The shows that air before and after it have more viewers than it. There are specifically people who are like, all right, 8, 7 central, time for my ABC. All right, that's done. There's this Daybreak shit on. And then an hour later, let's go back to ABC now that Daybreak shit is away. Yeah, the only conclusion you could draw from this is that people were deliberately avoiding ABC while Daybreak was airing. They hated it that much. (laughs) In its fifth week of airing, Viewership's 3.9 million. Show is immediately taken off the air. We, yeah. we cannot have this, you know, anchor around our neck anymore. Um, and the remaining weeks until Lost Return in February are filled with sitcoms called The Knights of Prosperity and In Case of Emergency, uh, each themselves, which were canned before completing their full season runs. <laughs> so just, <laughs> just a cursed time slot. No question. Um, yeah. Although good news. So January 29th, the following year, in a revolutionary move, ABC releases not just the first six aired episodes, but four of the following unaired episodes on their website to stream for free. Yeah. Into- I, I remember logging on to abc.go.com when I was like 16 years old. Yeah. To make this happen. This was a huge deal. Like this was not something that um, TV networks were doing at the time. Maybe they were doing it for shows that were on the air. Mm-hmm. But they were not releasing shows, unaired, you know, episodes online, you know, just, just for anyone to watch. Um, Wait, but why only four of the remaining seven? Well, I, basically the idea that they were going to do is kind of like how I think Hulu does their original series now, where they'll drop the first three and then go weekly. Mm-hmm. They were planning to drop, you know, the following four, and then the next three would come out weekly. Um, the finale kept getting delayed until March 2nd. Oh. Of that year, because there were like copyright clearance issues with some of the music. Um, imagine being a Daybreak fan in 2007 and you have to wait an extra three weeks to see the final episode that you know is the final episode that will ever exist. That's right, I literally just told you that I don't have to imagine that. Um, but ima- I was the one Daybreak fan to whom that happened. But imagine it. <laughs> imagine being Hannah. But imagine being Hannah. Imagine I have being to. six foot one in heels, imagine being <laughs> blonde and stylish and cool and. People just greet you on the street and say amazing things about you all the time. <laughs> just imagine that. I have to imagine it, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so part of the segment I usually do is I talk about what the press was, you know, what was stuff that was happening in the press concurrent with the cancellation of the show. There was fuck all in the press about the cancellation of Daybreak. No one gave a shit. No one interviewed the creator that I could find mm-hmm. or the cast members until like years later. Yeah. The, the interviews of the cast members are all like, they'll get one question about it in like a broader interview about something else or be asked about like, so what was that Daybreak show that you were on? And they all seem to have loved it. They all seem to have like really enjoyed their time on it. And then they'll just like give a very sort of like, you know, basic answer about like, yeah, it turns out nobody watched it. <laughs> like, I thought it was really good, but I guess it wasn't. Yeah. Um, you were the only one on Earth who cared about this show at the time, is what we're learning. No, I remember um, trying to evangelize this show on a IRC channel for a Battle Royale forum roleplay that I was on at the time mm-hmm. uh, when I was a teenager. And I remember getting the most hostile reception I've ever gotten to... <laughs> I'm recommending something, um, which is like, you know, I explained the premise and a guy just like got really aggro at me. And was like, that sounds like the stupidest shit ever. Why? Because he wakes up and it's the same case. When he wakes up, it should be a different case. I'm like, what? No, that's a procedural. <laughs> you just want a procedural. <laughs> that is uh, exceptionally nerdy of you, which means 
I won't do the thing we have in the notes, which is bullying you for when we were watching the show and you said that the final arc with Rita of the season gave you the same feeling, quote, as when I was a kid and Agumon digivolved into Skullgreymon and Guilemon digivolved into Mega Draymon. I don't know who these characters are. I'm <laughs> certainly not about to correct you on a pronunciation. Um, <laughs> that was added into this document by a malicious third party. <laughs> okay, I have to take this shit for the magician girl. <laughs> okay, okay, don't start with me. Listen, you I, clearly... will, I will saw you in half if you continue to <laughs> pull this type of power play on these episodes. Look, this sounds like a woman who wants to be in a box and then get a sheet put over <laughs> her and appear in a box on the other side of the room. That's all I'm saying. I will just start uh, pl- inserting into the audio files of this full audio recordings of The Masked Magician, where he reveals <laughs> all of the secrets that you love so no! dearly. <laughs> Not the secrets! <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, the creative staff behind this. Yeah, creator Paul Zibzewski. Uh I will. Uh, this is a word that I know. For example, not like any of those Digimon. All right, let's go. Let's uh, let's loop. Zbyshevsky. Z- creator Paul Zbyshevsky. That's pretty good. All right, like 80%, you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So he got his start as a writer on the game show Weakest Link. (laughs) Um, He was there, like, writing all the things for that, like, mean British lady would just be like, you know, Paul, you're fat. (laughs) (laughs) He came up with all those. Which is funny because um, when ABC executives looked at their uh, listings this season, they did say to Daybreak, you are the weakest link, goodbye. Yeah, they were saying that at the time. And they also said, you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) They also said Tribe has spoken, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Um, So that was basically the only thing he did before he got his big break as the creator of Daybreak. Yeah. Um, Here's the good news. Daybreak crashed and burned, but he did impress the mothership. Um, yes. He was brought on to join the Lost Writers Room in season five. He wrote three episodes for season five. Mm-hmm. And when season six rolled around, he was promoted to executive producer and wrote an additional three episodes. So, like, it's just so cool that, you know, the creators of Lost, Damon and Carlton, clearly watched Daybreak and were really impressed with it. And were like, we got to get this guy on board. Yeah, it's a really, like, sweet little resolution to this for me. And, like, obviously, like, you know, we've mentioned some of the, the actors that are involved in this. Uh, they certainly landed on their feet. What about the directors? Because you have something you wanted to tell me. Yeah, okay. So the first director that we want to know is Rob Bowman, um, who is, like, classic, like, journeyman, um, you know, middle to low grade action guy. Um, did a lot of TV work, but also, like, for example, directed uh, the X-Files movie. Um, this has a lot of, like, X-Files, like, personnel lineage, for sure. Um, directed Reign of Fire. Have you ever seen that one? I have not seen it. I've, I've heard of it. Yeah, it's the one, uh, it's like a post-apocalyptic movie about, like, fighting dragons in a bombed-out London. <laughs> um, and he directed Elektra. Um, so Garnerline comes back with a vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, by the way, shout out to this show for a, um, I guess just, like, not giving a shit about the Garner line because like uh, Victoria Pratt is like 36 years old at the time of this and they're just fully on board with her being insanely hot. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, just before I get too far away from this topic, like shout out to the show for being the first one of these that we've seen so far that has like a non-white person as the lead. Yeah. Um, it does 
come up like the racial aspect of it in a sort of indirect sense throughout any idea of like you know this being a black man who's being like framed by a corrupt police force in los angeles like that certainly you know has a lot of implications behind it Mm -hmm. um there's one episode where it comes in like explicitly where he's like at the country club trying to get clues and um this like you know manager of the country club is like going up to the police uh just being like excuse me there's this um african-american gentleman (laughs) Just like putting the most like, you know, uh, you know what he really means on that. Yeah. But anyway, Rob Bowman. Yeah. Just a great like uh, hired hand for for making like competent action scenes. Without him, we could have had David Escoyer type action. And we're so grateful for that. But also episode 11, um, that one that we were raving about is directed by a guy named Brian Spicer, who is also a TV guy. He did a lot of stuff for like Castle 24, House. Heroes, Esther's favorite, mm-hmm. CSI, Hawaii Five-O, Magnum P.I. Um, but he also made his feature film directorial debut in 1995, directing Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie. Hell yeah. <laughs> Again, never write anyone off. <laughs> if this is, like, if there's one lesson that you take away from uh, the Lost Broadcast, is like, never write anyone off for making, like, you know, something else that kind of, like, sucked or was forgettable or was for kids or whatever. Um, because Brian Spicer has that episode in him. <laughs> Absolutely. So, now comes the part of the show um, where we get to talk about the fandom. And mm-hmm. specifically... Who is just me, by the way. So, everything that Esther says from here, she will be talking about things that I did. <laughs> So specifically, we're going to talk about AO3, as we love to do recently. I think mm-hmm. it's just it's just always a wealth of, of material to talk about. Um, there are 29 Daybreak fanfics on Archive of Our Own. Better than it could have been. Yeah. No, it's solid for the 13-episode show from 2006. 28 of those 29 fanfics <laughs> are written by the same author. Okay. Who goes by Lady Talon. Uh, one of those fics... She is me. It's okay. Well, then I, I, I'll explain this to the audience. Yeah. One of those fics is a Brit slash Chad uh, fanfic. Makes complete sense. They they definitely have, like, you know, jilted X type yeah. dynamics and whatnot. One of them is Rita Chad, which okay. is, you know, is part of the canon of the show. Sure. 26 of them are Andrea Chad. I don't remember writing all those, but I suppose I did. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny, like... The, the the pairings that fans will pick up on that don't seem to have any relation to, like, yeah. you know, what the show is giving, basically. Andrea and Chad don't even interact that much. Yeah, like, they do in the sense that, like, he's supposed to be, like, grilling her about the IA stuff later in the, the day. But, like, in almost every loop, that gets interrupted by, like, the plot happening. Yeah. So most of these fics are adjacent to Lady Talon's magnum opus, Mm. which is called An Internal Affair. Okay. (laughs) Great title, by the way. That's an Andrea Chad fic. Uh, It comprises 30 chapters and 77,000 words, (laughs) making it a little bit longer than The Catcher in the Rye. I was really lonely at the time. Um, We're not going to read any of it, um, just because it's so long. It's impossible to find a good section, but I will give you a little taste. Yeah, just as a quick... No, there was a previous like time loop of this show where we did read all of it, um, but it didn't really go over well with the fans. So. <laughs> uh, just just to give you an impression of what an internal affair is like, the word Brett 
gets 11 mentions in the entire fanfic. It's a reasonable amount. Yeah. Uh, 18 mentions for the word cock. (laughs) (laughs) Only five of those happened immediately after the word brag. (laughs) It was so weird. I just had like a, a... you know, something in me that needed to come out. I just type Brett Cock, Brett Cock, Brett Cock. <laughs> All right, done with that. Uh, anyway, yeah, shout out to Lady Talon, who is active to this day on AO3. Uh, lately, what she's been writing is Guardians of the Galaxy fix, where a self-insert character fucks the Michael Rooker alien Yondu. Listen, this woman loves Michael Rooker and Adam Baldwin. <laughs> you, you might think we're making fun of her. We're absolutely not. No, no, I would like her to come on the show. <laughs> yeah. For a bonus episode. Lady Talon, you're great. Uh, we appreciate the work that you've been doing. Um, sorry that I've been stealing your identity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do we have anything else we want to say about Daybreak? No, I mean, I, I think that that's kind of it. Um, we are, again, super happy that, like, it, this is one of those, like, in the corniest way possible, like, you know, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened type <laughs> yes. of thing. Like, just the fact that this managed to get aired... The fact that it had a compelling and, like, final conclusion to it. Um, and the fact that it didn't become, like, fully lost media. That we were able to watch it and talk about it in 2023. Oh, it is lost media. Shut the fuck up. I'm so sorry. I slept for, like, two hours last night. <laughs> yeah. She was very nervous about going to see Killers of the Flower Moon. I was worried that something would happen and we couldn't see the movie. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're starting, like, a... Uh, a condolences card for Esther. So just like everyone go around and sign it. This is my, this is our new regular segment that we'll repeat every month. Uh, Esther's ailment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no, you joke, but the months are getting colder. You're going to get more and more ailments. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, I think that's about it. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for listening to The Lost Broadcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, a five-star review. I check so often to see if there's a new <laughs> one. And really, it will make me sad if you don't do it. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Lost Broadcasts, or you can send us an email at The Lost Broadcast. Someone sent us an email for the first time this month. Um, Wait, why didn't you tell me? What? what? No, I did. What? I did tell you. Was it good? It was someone who wanted to see a reunion, so I sent them our megafile. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, just if you want to say something about the shows, please, by all means. We love hearing from people who listen to the show. Uh, yeah, next time send it to, to Hannah specifically so that Esther is forced to tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to see you next month. What's our show next month going to be about? Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. We have, uh, we had a lot to say during this episode about how this show understands location in a way that previously only Lost had done as far as Lost alikes, right? Talk about how great the quarry is. There's a lot of great LA plays itself type stuff in here. Um, So we're thinking of like trying to go for a little more like site-specific vibes. Um specifically in a form of the first one of these somehow that actually went with the premise of like uh we're going to an exotic location again right that isn't just saying what if the island was tampa florida right (laughs) uh we are going with the kids lost flight 29 down Uh uh-huh to round out the year so uh tune in for that on december 1st thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time bye